What's up, everybody? This is Cortland from NDHackers.com, where I talk to the founders of profitable internet businesses, and I ask them to share the behind-the-scenes stories from how they got started and how they've grown their companies so that the rest of us can learn from their experiences. Today, I'm talking to Vivek Ravisankar. He's the CEO of a company called HackerRank, whose mission is really to make the process of getting a job as a programmer a lot more fun and enjoyable, something that I can personally get behind because it's pretty terrible. Now, HackerRank is, unlike most of the people that I talk to, a VC-funded company that has raised millions of dollars. But Vivek and his partner went through a very similar story to what you will go through as an ND hacker starting any sort of business. They spent years really just trying to find the right business model, the right product that customers would like, and pivoting their way over and over and over again into what eventually became a successful product. There's a lot to learn from hearing Vivek's story and from listening to the advice that he has to share. So with that, let's get into the episode. I'm here today with Vivek Ravisankar, the co-founder and CEO of HackerRank. Vivek, how's it going? Good, how are you? I'm doing excellent. Thanks for taking the time to come on the show. I realize you're a very busy guy, uh, but HackerRank is a fascinating company, and I'm really excited to have you on because I think that there's a lot that people can learn from your story. Absolutely. No, excited to be here. I've been following Indie Hackers for a while, so uh, thank you for inviting me. So for people who don't know, HackerRank is really a marketplace. For developers, it helps you practice via coding challenges. You can see how you stack up against other developers, and it also helps you find jobs at companies that are hiring developers. And for companies, it's the opposite. It helps companies find talented developers, uh, screen them using custom sets of tests and challenges, and even interview them remotely. Is that an accurate description of HackerRank? Yeah, I should probably uh, take this and put it on our pitch deck. Yeah, that's, that's pretty accurate. Uh, that's, <laughs> uh, that's how HackerRank works. Yeah. Oh, cool. And how big is HackerRank? I ask just because it gives listeners some context and helps them better understand your story. And even if you don't share your revenue numbers publicly, I think other metrics can be telling. Sure. So uh, from uh, from a community size, we have we're getting close to three million developers uh, who uh, who have at least attempted one challenge on our site, and uh, we have over a thousand paying customers across different industries. Stripe is was one of our customers whom we signed up recently from uh, from the internet software companies to financial services like Goldman Sachs and retail, Best Buy. So we have customers across the globe. So that's the that's the scale we're looking at. Awesome. I mentioned that HackerRank was a marketplace earlier, where you're really connecting two different groups of people, developers on one hand and companies on the other. And the challenge here is that it's not, you know, no marketplace is useful to one group unless you've already got lots of people using you from the other group. So you can't exactly help companies hire developers if you don't have developers on your site. And it ends up being this really difficult chicken and egg problem. So whenever I have somebody on the podcast who's got a marketplace, I like to ask, which side has been the most challenging for you to grow over the years? And how did you juggle this chicken and egg problem and sort of seesaw your way to where you are now? Yeah, it's a good question. I don't know if, if I have the perfect uh, framework or generic framework to how to solve a chicken and egg problem. But the way that we did, and you know, we didn't think of this very deeply, we figured, okay, if you have a software and go and sell to companies because they already are interviewing a lot of developers and it's, it's a very inefficient process. Uh, so just to give you a little bit of background about me, I used to work at Amazon before this as a developer and I did a lot of technical interviews. I think at one point of time when we did the math, we were doing about 100 phone screens to get one offer. So it was it was a crazy amount of time in terms of uh, hours spent and the, and the efficiency or, or lack thereof. And that, that's what helped us, okay, let's go ahead and build a product that can help companies optimize their whole recruiting process and make it way more efficient. So that's how we got started. Um, and then as companies started to sign up and, and the developers started to appreciate this mode of evaluation because you didn't necessarily have to be in, in the top, you didn't have to go to a top school or you didn't have to have the greatest pedigree in order for you to get an interview at all of these different companies because you need to show your skills. And resumes actually don't do a really good job in showing skills. So developers appreciated, companies started adopting. And then what started as, okay, let's just put up a fun little site where we can just have a few challenges just for practice, ended up growing this large community. Uh, so frankly, we've, we've actually never spent, or I wouldn't like to say never, but we have probably you know, spent very, 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 very little and, and in the order of less than maybe $10,000 over the lifetime of, of HackerRank on trying to acquire developers to join the community. So it's largely been organic and, and word of mouth. 
that's a super impressive. So it's all your effort really is going to to getting companies on the platform and not developers. That's correct. Yeah. So we have a we have a standard go to market model for companies, and what we are starting to see as effects of the developer community is as more and more developers come and practice, they are also starting to see, okay, this sounds fun. Let me go ahead and ask my company if they're interested to use this method of evaluating developers for our own company. So that also acts as a way for us to continue to grow our company base. And I like that you you mentioned that HackRank is fun. Uh, you're one of the few companies that I've that I've had on the podcast where I've actually used your product before having you on the podcast. So I use ConvertKit now with Indie Hackers. After I talked to Nathan Barry, I started using Meet Edgar. After I talked to Laura Roeder, uh, but besides you, I think only Zapier is the, other, the only other product that I've used, and that's because HackRank is pretty fun. I've always been an entrepreneur. I've never even wanted to apply for a job. But I thought it would be fun one day to sit down on HackerRank and take challenges just to see where I stack up. And I'm a competitive person, so maybe I'm projecting a little bit. But I think it's just inherently fun to see where you rank and to see how good you are compared to other programmers. Was it your goal from the outset to create a website that was fun? Uh, did you initially want to create something that was competitive for programmers? Or did you take kind of a windy path to get to where you are now? I think I think at the code of it, I wanted the whole job interview process. I still want it to be way more transparent and way more merit based. And I felt the we've not fully solved it. It's still very stressful and it's not fun. You know, it's not it's not nobody nobody thinks of going to an interview as a fun thing to do. Uh, in fact, you know, you're almost say I need to write my write code on the whiteboard. And I need to practice all of these things. I, I still feel the whole process of applying to a job and practicing and honing your skills should be fun at the core level. Have we solved it? No, but but that's the path that we are uh, that we are on. So at some level, I think it was deeply rooted in us that we wanted to make this as a fun place for developers to do it. That's such a cool mission because there's almost nothing fun about applying for jobs, and I've sort of based my entire career as a developer around never having to do that. Yeah, yeah, it's um, it, it is it is a bit uh, it is a bit stressful for multiple reasons. One is um, you know most of the application process seems to be like a black hole. Uh, if you apply to a company, are you sure you're going to hear back from them? Um, uh, did it even reach reach them? And and if at all it reached, and you got an interview call, are you sure what they're going to be asking? Uh, what are the tools that they're going to give? And frankly, I think one of the companies that have done well, and I'm not saying this because I'm on this podcast, is Stripe. Uh, I think Stripe, they've done a really good job of, uh, I think there was a PDF that they published on here is what you can expect in the interview. Here are the different skills that we're going to evaluate on. And you know what? Bring your own laptop and go ahead and code it on, on that uh, to make it comfortable. So I think that's the direction. Um, uh, that, that's the directionally right way of moving towards a better interview process. Yeah, I hope so. Because like you said, it's it's stressful. And I, when I see developers preparing for interviews, the number one thing that they seem to be feeling is just stress and worry and anxiety. You know, am I going to be good enough? Am I going to get in? A lot of bitterness when they aren't accepted. So uh, I hope you guys make some headway in solving that problem. But I want to, I want you to walk me through kind of the beginning story of HackerRank. Were you worried about this particular problem in the, in the very start, or what was your motivation to get started? I think, uh, and, and I mentioned this a little bit uh, earlier. So I, I was very annoyed at the number of hours that that I spent on interviewing and um, and resumes were a, were a very poor indicator of skills and uh, and and I knew that none of the developers in, in our team really wanted really liked doing the interview in fact interview was doing an interview was like throwing an exception in your code it, it's it just it's just right there in the calendar and and it sometimes even spoils the day so so people used to either put the interview as as the last to do item on the list or just finish it off right at the beginning so that they they have more time to go ahead and code so nobody liked doing interviews but everyone wanted great developers and resumes were a poor indicator of skill so the intersection of all of this was okay there needs there, there is a problem that needs to be solved so how do we go ahead and do it um, the early story or the early iteration of the product, uh, we had a lot of failed ideas, by the way, when we got started. Uh, I think the first um, evolution of HackerRank was this product called Interview Street. And what, what the, the way that product worked was it's, it's actually mock interviews. So let's say you're going to interview at Amazon. You could come onto our site and attend a mock interview with, with someone who's, who's 
been through the interview process of Amazon or was working at Amazon, was an ex-Amazonian, to get a real understanding as to how the interview worked. So we used to charge two, three fifty rupees. This is an Indian currency. So I mean, it's it's it won't be fair to compare to U.S. dollars, but but since the audience is global, so I'll say it's about ten dollars or so, or probably less than that. And two fifty rupees to the interviewer. We used to pay the interviewer because you're conducting the mock interview, and and hundred rupees are goes to our pocket. So that was our very first business model. I still have the Excel. Uh, where we project uh, a billion dollars of revenue. Um, and I think after a year and a half or so, we made about $1,000. So there was a big lesson that you can do any magic in Excel, that you can just, uh, uh, that you can just put a formula and, and, and just scroll it right through all the rows and you get large numbers, but it's really, really hard to execute. I think we, we, learned, we learned a tremendous amount of lessons through that. Um, what, uh, and, and I don't like to blame the market uh, uh, or external ones. There were a lot of things that, that we could have done better, but I don't think the payment infrastructure irony you know so i'm talking to something about stripe uh the payment infrastructure in india was very poor uh, at, at that time it was so hard to set up a bank account set up something online and we had to go to individual colleges and we collect money in cash in person from all of the candidates um wow and what year is this this was 2010 uh that's when we got started and then of course the the amount we paid for interviewers who were working at companies like google or amazon or microsoft it, it it wasn't it wasn't really interesting. Um, uh, you know, do I really need this and spend an hour um, to do it? I'm not really sure. So, uh, so there was there was not a good and it's some some kind of marketplace where I don't think there was a good uh, supply demand match. Um, and we applied to Y Combinator uh, during this process. We we got turned down. So we then iterated to another idea where we wanted to help students who are applying for masters. Uh, this was a sort of a tangent to to, to our original idea because that failed, and and it's a big deal well, when yeah. If you if you let me interrupt for just a second, sure. How did you? Why did you start with the mock interview idea? So we thought, okay, the way to fix this whole interview problem is to just train candidates, right? I mean, there are two ways to go <laughs> ahead and do it. One is you could give the product or the or the uh, or a solution to companies. Or the other option is, okay, look, you can actually help candidates prepare. Hey, here is what you need to be good at. Um, and, um, and, and just like any other preparation, um, you can go ahead and do it. So, so we didn't know which one to choose. So we just chose, uh, went ahead with choosing the candidate side. Well, that, that makes a lot of sense. Why did it take you, you said a year or a year and a half to, to figure out that it, it wasn't going to work and that you weren't going to hit your super optimistic billion dollar in revenue target? Yeah, so the, uh, so the billion dollar revenue target was definitely over the course of five to six years. So it would have been a pretty crazy to do it over a year and a half. But um, <laughs> but why did it? I, I I don't know. I think it's probably you know we just uh, it's it's really hard to know when when the idea is not working. Uh, you know when you when you think about stories like Airbnb and others, and and you see that they they work three years with I don't know ten ten bookings or twenty bookings or something really tiny, and and then it suddenly grew. Um, that's one thing I don't think there's a perfect framework for determining when do you stop working. So I don't think there's a particular logic on which we stop doing after a year and a half. Maybe we were just tired. Okay, this this doesn't seem to be going anywhere. Oh, that makes sense. Do you remember having a, a conversation with your, your co-founder about you know when you guys got to the point of being ready to pivot and ready to quit? Were you guys did you see it in, in advance? You know, for a number of months, or did it was it kind of like a sudden epiphany? We should stop doing this. Actually, we we never really stopped doing it. So our pivot was okay. We'll just keep this in 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 one tab in a in a hidden tab on the website, but we'll do something else on the homepage. So if somebody ah. comes to that, let's go ahead, let, let let them go ahead and do it. So it was not a uh, it was not a hard pivot. Great. So uh, you were describing kind of the next product that you guys started working on. What was that like, and what was it? Yeah, the next one was um, again something tangential. And and again, by the way, I'm I'm probably just uh, glossing over a ton of tiny details uh, that, 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 we all, that we continue to do over the year and a half in terms of iteration. First was figuring out payment. Second was figuring out scheduling. You know, what if the interviewer had some other meeting at that point in time? How do you communicate that to the candidate? And, and then figuring out what the scheduling part of it. Sometimes, and, 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 uh, yeah, and I don't know if it still exists or not. So it, it is pretty expensive to, to call somebody in India, especially if you're 
if you don't belong to the same state. So, so in the U.S., it's very different. So you can call from here to New York and you don't, there's no extra fee or extra charge compared to you calling somebody in California. But if you were to call out of state, it used to be pretty expensive. So, so then when we used to match the candidate from one state and an interviewer in another state, who, who's going to bear the phone expense? And, and we all, our margins are already tiny. And so if you add the phone expense to it, it becomes even smaller. So, so who's going to bear that? So there were, uh, and we continue to iterate a lot. And then there was, we found a, we found a really good audio conference facility, which was cheap and also had wipe. So over the course of one and a half years, it was just a series of iterations, trying to figure out what could work and 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 figuring out how how do we do the match. And so it was not a hard pivot. It was just okay. I don't think there is any logical iteration that we can figure out to make this work. And so let's try and uh, let's try and figure out how this whole idea of connecting students who wanted to do their master's program in the U.S. work. And, and, and the, the reason for this was, I mean, as we continue to work on the first idea, we talked to a lot of students. We, we asked them what, what are their pain points. Of course, interviewing and getting a job was one of them. But then, the, if, if not equal, there was probably more. Uh, the bigger pain point was, hey, I want to go to a university in the United States for, for, for doing a master's in computer science, and I have no idea what, how, do you, how do I pick a school. And it's a it's a big big deal in India to come here and uh, do your masters, and of course the application process was intensive and expensive. I mean each each uh, each application form I don't know used to be around hundred dollars or so, which is even pretty expensive just in the U.S. Uh, denomination. But if if you look at India, it's way more. Um, so then what that means is you can't apply to 10 schools. You can only apply to five because you had a limitation on how much budget you were willing to go ahead and spend. And if you could only apply to five, how do you choose which five? And uh, so we used to connect people here to students who are already doing their masters in, in Carnegie Mellon, in Purdue, in MIT, in Stanford, and others who can review your statement of purpose, your resume, and tell you, okay, you know, here are the areas that you need to improve, here are the areas that you need to get better at, and here you have a good, good shot of it, here you don't have. So, so that started to work. Uh, worked pretty well in the early days and there was a good uptick and and after a couple of months the traffic was almost down to zero um, turns out that you can only apply twice a year so we didn't know what to do for the rest of the year uh, so so that also failed um, so and and we again applied to YC I, I think during this time and of course we, we, we got turned on because we didn't have a product that had uh, that was either a really good idea or, or we screwed up the application process so so that was our second pivot yeah it sounds like you really uh, now, like when you're describing what you were working on, you do a really good job describing the problem that people had, right? how difficult it was for them to apply to go to uh, the United States and, and go to school and how, you know, they weren't able to apply to as many schools as they wanted to because it was so expensive. I think it's very smart to look at your business in terms of what people want or the problems that they have rather than just the features that you want to build. Were you thinking about those things the same way back then? Or is this kind of now that you have more knowledge as an entrepreneur, you can look back and, and frame it in terms of the problem? Um, I think I think we continue to get better at that. Uh, even now, when whenever you know a customer asks uh, for, hey, I need this particular feature, I think everyone thinks in a very very narrow uh, uh, narrow environment where, okay, I need this so that it could it will make my life better, and that's the right way. I, I don't I don't I can't blame them for that. But how, but we need to really understand what their problem is and. And so, so related to that, when we started to pivot to the Hacker Rank product, which is our enterprise product of selling to companies where they could create their own custom challenges to hire developers, we got much better at it because when we went and talked to different companies and different recruiters, they really wanted us to solve, okay, I'm going to give you a set of resumes. Please write a resume parser that can tell me who the right developer I need to interview. So we would have ended up building a resume parser if we didn't get to the core problem. And the core problem was I can't identify who's the right developer based on a set of resumes. So our solution was completely tangential, which was to build a code checker module where people can write code, compile, and we evaluate on complexity, on correctness, and a bunch of different parameters that we're starting to extend on and see who's really good. So I think that was an example of where we uh, where we dug deep into understanding what the real problem was instead of just implementing, okay, here's what you need to go ahead and do. Yeah, that's, that's so interesting. And it reminds me of like the most cliche Henry Ford quote, I think, in the world where he says, if I asked customers what they wanted, they would have told me they wanted a faster horse, uh, where he kind of highlights the difference between 
focusing on the solution and focusing on the problem. And when you focus on the problem, you can come up with more novel solutions that actually do a better job solving that problem. How much of your early development and all these pivots and changes you were going through early on, how much of that was driven by talking to customers and how much was driven by your own intuition for what people would want? Um, I think um, until until we got to a really strong product market fit, I think it was driven a lot uh, by customers. I think once we identified and we got a very strong product market fit, especially on the Hackerline product, and it, it is also driven by customers, but I would say the, the intuition of, okay, where should the whole market go or where should the where is the job industry going or how we should do what is the future of interviews going to be is a lot driven by intuition and, and experimentation so i think i think the balance has shifted a little i bet you it's, it's a lot more fun when you can go by uh intuition experimentation yeah it's fun as long as it works <laughs> if it doesn't then, it, then it's not good but yeah if it works then it's great yeah so tell me about the early days of, of HackerRank when these people were asking you for a resume parser. What did you guys do next? We were never interested in building a resume parser, frankly. And uh, it, we, we, I, think we, I think we sat down to write code for it, but I don't think neither of us were, were just bought into the problem. Like, what, what, what would you search for? I mean, if, if, basically, if, if it's garbage in, which is if everybody's going to claim that they're an expert, which you have to claim, why would you claim that you're an novice in a resume? How can you get meaningful signals out of that when you write a parser on top of it? So we were never really convinced about it, and so it was back to okay, how can we how can we figure can we go to the other side now? All of all of our thinking has been how do we train candidates, how do we prepare candidates for interviews and all of them, but can we flip to the other side where we can say, hey company, here is a product that you can use to assess developers. Can we go ahead and do it? Um, so it was, it was more about flipping to the other side and, and, and experimenting with it. In terms of how we came up with the idea, really, I think both of both Hari and I were competitive programmers back in college. So it, it didn't take us. And we actually wrote our code checker in college that used to power all of the different programming contests. So it was it was sort of a home territory for us. Um, and uh, we said, OK, let's go ahead and, and, and build this and see if companies are interested to buy this. That's interesting. You, you had a background in competitive programming. Do you think you would have thought about this idea if you didn't have that background? It's a good question. Sometimes I think it's a, it's a boon because it helped us get started. Sometimes I think it's a con because I don't think the entire world of developers, of, clearly the entire world of developers is not competitive programmers. It's probably a small subset of that. And so you need to make sure if, if we want to build a, develop, a large developer community and and make sure that the job interview process is merit-based for developers across the globe, then, then we have to get away from the competitive programming mindset a lot. So it's both a pro and a con. Yeah, it's difficult to navigate being a founder and building a product that's supposed to reach many thousands or hundreds of thousands or millions of people because no matter what, your own personal experiences are never going to be representative of what life is like and what other people's goals are for that number of people. Yeah, like you mentioned, I think one of your uh, intrinsic motivation and, and probably your personality is like that is to, okay, I'm going to code and see how I, um, how I rank against other developers. In fact, what we found was over 50% of developers actually just wanted to continue to improve their skills and see how well they are doing, not even try to benchmark against how well I'm doing with other developers in my country, in my region and things. I want to do this because I want to personally improve. Um, and, and it's a very different mindset from a competitive one, which is, and we specifically try to, uh, try to ask questions or try to um, distinguish these two sets. Uh, the competitive mindset is, is more about, I need to be there in number one leaderboard. And, and neither of that is right or wrong, but it's just a different mindset. And, uh, and so being a competitive programmer as a, as a background uh, will probably need to, Sometimes it's a pro, sometimes it's a con. Yeah, totally. And people are completely different. I work with my brother, and he's we're twins, but he's the exact opposite of me in almost every way. A good example is if we're playing board games, I will, for example, jump in, play a game that I don't know how to play, lose a bunch of times, and try to get better, whereas he's more of the mindset that he won't play until he knows all the rules and has seen a bunch of other people play so that he can you know, come in his first game and look competent. So it's just interesting to be a founder and to deal with the fact that 
you're probably, you know, at your core, very different than most people. And it's difficult to know what they want and how they tick unless you actually talk to them and, and spend a lot of time around them. Yeah, 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 yeah. Agree. I think, uh, go ahead. No, I'm just, I was just trying to say both of you have a different AI training algorithms. <laughs> yeah, we do. <laughs> but I think it gets us to a similar place in the end. How did you find your first customer for Hacker Rank? And, and beyond your first customer, your first few customers? It was a lot of struggle. So we did we did a bunch of things. I think I think one of them was, of course, try to ask my ex manager at Amazon, "Hey, can you go ahead and try?" Of course, Amazon was not willing to try out a product that, that was just built by a couple of guys uh, in a garage or sort of in a garage. We really built it in Hari's my co-founder Hari's terrace. So one hack that we did was we created. Um, Okay, I think I can I can say this. It's been a while. We created a fake resume, which had the greatest credentials, right? That that your mom would be so proud of. Uh, we we it it had uh, IIT is the equivalent of Stanford or an MIT in India. So we it, we put it as okay. We went to IIT. We did. We had the highest GPA. We went to the top schools. Uh, I mean, we went to the top company. We worked at top companies. It was a fake resume, and then we just put it up in all of the different job boards. Right. And so what we got was a host of inbound phone calls from recruiters because they all wanted to hire this person. And then whenever we used to receive the phone call, we'd say, hey, you know what? I, I'm not that person. I want to be honest. I'm not that person. But if you use our product, you can help find people like them. So that's, that's <laughs> one way what we used to generate demand. And it actually worked. I think, I think we got Zynga. As our, it was one of our early customers, and I think uh, we had a call from one of the recruiters at Zynga, who um, who wanted to try try this product. I think it was a combination of okay, let's get a couple, few of our friends who are working in companies to try it out. I think this hack worked pretty well, and then once you had some proof points, then we we started to get uh, a lot of customers there. Yeah, that's such an ingenious hack because it really flips the equation on its head, and instead of having to do a ridiculous amount of research and spend all the time, you know, making outbound calls to these recruiters. You just had people calling you, yeah. which is the exact situation you want to be in. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so it was it was just a really easy way to try and do that. Yeah, I think oftentimes early on in a company's life and in a company's history, there are times where you have to do things that are sort of unscalable. Uh, and I, I know you went through Y Combinator, so you probably heard this mantra a lot of times from Paul Graham: "Do things that don't scale." Were there any things that you guys did early on that didn't scale, where you were putting in a lot of manual effort to do something that you knew later on you would probably automate or outsource? Yeah, and, and, I, and I don't think, uh, that, that's a, yeah, it's a really good article. What I'm not sure, um, and I, uh, what I'm not sure, maybe I should ask Patrick or Airbnb or Brian Chesky from Airbnb, is do you, does that stop? You know, I, I think that the article was more on, hey, in the early stages, you got to do. Uh, but I feel sometimes even now, I know this thing is not, I'm doing things that is not going to scale, but I have to do because something is broken. Uh, so it's a, it's, it's a balance. So early on, I think one of the things that we did was we, in order for you to really create a good programming challenge, uh, what what you needed to do was you needed to have a concise, clear problem statement. You needed to generate a bunch of test cases. And when you choose different languages, let's say you choose C++, Java, Python, and you needed to have good code stops, you know, you, you want you want the developer experience to be great. So you wanted the, all the... All that the developer needed to really do was to just complete the function instead of worrying about how do I take the input? Is it from SCDN? Is it from a file? Is it do I need to read from read from uh, some other API? So, what the early days of creating a question was literally, we'll go to the company and say, you know what? I'm just going to make it super easy. Just send a Word doc. Just just write down a very high level overview of what you want to achieve in this question. It doesn't have to be so detailed. We will do the manual work of making sure that we we put in all the constraints, make it very clear, concise, create all the test cases, put all the code stubs. Uh, and I think it was getting painful um, after a point of time. We of course had some internal tools that we built, and um, and this was this was one of the things that I can remember were in the early days where we did things that that clearly wasn't scalable. Yeah, and it's it's good that you describe it as painful because. I think a lot of people don't realize that, yes, doing things like this is painful for you, but if you don't do it, then it's going to be very painful for your customers. And when you're super early on, 
you can't really afford to, you know, make your customers jump through hoops to try to use your unproven, untested product that you're not even sure if it's going to work. Yeah, I agree. Okay, so you found your first customers using this, this ingenious hack. You're doing a lot of unscalable things. How did you grow and mature HackerRank as a product? And what were some of the, the first changes you made? Uh, again, I think it, uh, it, it sort of depends upon, uh, it varied a lot on different phases. From, just from a company perspective, I think a lot of the changes, uh, a lot of the things that I had to learn continue to evolve uh, myself as a founder and CEO is the quality and the importance that you give to the exec team. And this is just on the company side of it and how important it is uh, to hire the right exec team who can, who can help uh, mature the company. On the product side specifically, I think we've got to continue to improve our uh, usability and how do you make sure that your, your time to value to a customer continues to, uh, continues to decrease the time to value. Uh, but but as, we, as we start to go to sell into larger and larger companies, there are a lot of things specifically that we needed to do to cater to the needs of a large enterprise company. If you're going to sign up, sign up a company like customer like Goldman Sachs or, or Bloomberg or VMware, you, know, the, you, you have to help them give the ability to deploy to a large parts of their organization, which means whether that's integration with your existing tracking systems like Workday, Teleo, uh, or, or single sign-on, or Teams management, and all of these things which you wouldn't have really thought. And it's actually not even something connected to the core of your product, which is how do you evaluate a developer really good. You start to think about all of these things as, we, as you start to mature as an enterprise company. So I think at different stages uh, of, the, of the product uh, evolution, we had to work on, uh, you know, we had to work on different things. Yeah, it's a lot of stuff to learn. And I'm curious how many people you were working with. You've mentioned Hari, your co-founder, who you, you seem to have known since, since working on Amazon together. Uh, no, I, we went to the same college, um, so we, we okay. knew each other from, from college, and we did a bunch of things together, and uh, for what it's worth, at least on the record, Hari is a way stronger, better hacker than me. <laughs> well, uh, when did you guys first start bringing on other people besides just the two of you? Um, I think right after we got into Y Combinator, well, frankly, we didn't have any money before that, so Y Combinator was our first uh, first investment, dollar investment, really. And uh, yeah, so we hired our first set of developers um, after we got into YC. Tell me about the story of getting into YC. Is it, you got rejected twice, right? And then you finally got accepted with your third idea, HackerRank. Uh, I really wanted to come to the Valley. Um, and um, I think, I thought, and I still think it's a magical place, and for, at least for building companies. The cost of living is, is insanely high, though, but, but still, at least for building companies, I think it's a pretty amazing place. And um, I thought, I mean, the, the, I, had, I had multiple paths uh, that, that I plotted in my mind. One was, okay, let me try to do my master's in computer science at, at some college and study there and work at a company for a couple of years and then start to do my own company here. Or I could continue working in Amazon and then move to Seattle or, or California or something within Amazon and, and then try to go ahead and start a company here. And the third one was, is there a faster path? You know, the first two paths were just, okay, I have to spend three, four years to, to, to then figure out. And there are so many different variables and so many things that could happen in the four-year span that I didn't even know if, I, if, if my dream can come true. So... Uh, and why Combinator seemed to be this amazing uh, path, and it's a great passport for you to uh, go ahead and start your own company. And so I, I was very determined to come here and start, and so we, I, I figured, okay, you know what, I'm just going to keep applying till, till these guys uh, say yes and, call, and fly me in. Yeah, that persistence seems like it really paid off. Yeah, it was, it, was, it was really interesting. That was my first trip to the U.S. I think I landed on a Thursday morning or Thursday afternoon I had and I had my YC interview on Friday and I think it was the last day of the interview because I didn't even have a visa and I don't know how much you know about immigration and things but you can get a visa only after you get an invite letter uh, or some something of that sort from uh, from Y Combinator or any conference that you're attending so and of course it, it, the window of interviews was only two weeks so I got an invite letter on Monday and then it takes another five to seven days five to seven working days for the consulate to process the invite letter and get the visa. Uh, so I had to just figure out a way how to rush that through. And, and I think I, I came flu on Thursday, and I think I had the interview on a Friday. 
So I was just checking my uh, location stats on Google Analytics before we sat down to start recording, and something like 60-65% of all visitors to Andy Hackers are not from the United States. And even if you add together traffic from the US, Canada, and the UK, it's still, I think, less than 50% of the traffic. So if we assume that the podcast has a pretty similar ratio, then that means many thousands of people listening in are trying to build businesses in places other than the United States and could probably learn a lot from your experiences. What kinds of obstacles have you run into starting and growing your business from India, and how have you overcome those challenges? Yeah, I think, uh, I think well, I think India has changed uh, tremendously. I think there have been real giant winners or companies in India uh, like Flipkart, and then there is Ola, there is Paytm. I, I think I think the whole market has changed tremendously over the last four to five years. But when we started, yes, it was it was pretty hard. As I said, you know, just to figure out how do you get people to pay on your website used to be this long process, and where you had to fill hundreds of forms to try and get to try and get an okay instead of just having here is your JavaScript snippet, go ahead and embed it on your code and and, and get this up and running. So I think it has changed a lot, but I think the biggest thing that still remains to be to be seen or to be known is is the talent. And when I say talent, when I try to figure out, okay, I need this problem. Okay, we want to scale from twenty million in, in revenues to one hundred million ARR, um, in, in, and we are an enterprise SaaS company. So how many such VPs of sales who have done that and scale that exist? I don't know how many, I think, I think the odds are much higher that you would find more people here than in India who have done that in the past and who can actually help you, help you go ahead and do it. So I think that problem still remains to be solved. And I frankly don't know how you can solve it unless you actually go ahead and build large companies and it's going to take a while. Uh, I think that's the shortcut. I think that's the shortcut of why people try to move to Silicon Valley because I the people who have solved problems who can help you get from point A to point B, the odds of them, odds of you finding them are higher here. Do you think that you would still care as much about being in Silicon Valley if you weren't a VC funded company? Uh, yeah, for the talent, yes. I mean, in terms of in terms of finding the finding the people who can help me grow and help the company scale, yes. I think uh you know, your journey is kind of interesting because it seemed like for early on, you guys weren't really depending on funding, not until you got into YC and you had years before that where you were working on different things. Yeah, well, our burn rate was, our burn rate was really low. We were just staying at, at, at our house. We had free food from, from my mom and uh, all we had to be at laptops already. All we had to really pay was for the internet. Um, and it's not that we didn't try. Of course, we tried trying to raise uh, an angel round of financing and, and VC. I think we talked to a couple of VCs, but we, we frankly didn't deserve, I would say. We didn't have a product that had a lot of traction or so, so I wouldn't really blame them. But it was, it was, also, a hard, uh, it was also hard to raise any kind of financing in India. Yeah. I think back in those days, or like 2010, 2011, there was a, sort of a bigger debate, although it still exists today, between bootstrapped companies and VC-funded companies. And I know that I was also applying to Y Combinator at the same time that you were. And I, at one hand, really admired what YC was doing and really admired companies like Facebook that were able to grow so fast. But I was also listening to these guys from uh, Basecamp, or I guess it was 37 Signals at the time, uh, DHH and Jason Freed. I saw them give a talk at startup school, and the message that they were delivering was, hey, why not just charge money up front with your products? Why take the risk? of having to raise a bunch of money and become a billion dollar company or bust. Is that something that you struggled with? Or were you aware of both paths? Or were you more drawn towards uh, fundraising from the very beginning? I think I was drawn to Y Combinator primarily for as a way for me to get, uh, get an entry into Silicon Valley. And of course, it's one of the most prestigious networks that you can be associated or connected to. But then I think, I think once you get into Y Combinator, all the philosophies of DHH just goes out of the window uh, when you start to do the demo day. <laughs> I don't think, I, I think it's really hard for you to imagine uh, going to the demo day and saying, hey, here's our traction, we're really good, and by the way, we don't, we're not trying to raise any money. Uh, I think at some level, the peer pressure of, okay, who's getting the highest valuation and uh, who's getting funded or so forces you to forces you to go in the direction. And I'm not like trying to blame YC in any way, but I think once you get into YC and demo day, you, you start to think on that. And once you raise your first round of financing, uh, I've started to believe this. It's, you're, you're just in that loop. You just, uh, I don't know if stuck is the right word, but you're just caught in that loop and you, you'd probably continue to raise more financings um, from, from VCs there. 
Yeah, totally. I mean, I think moving to Silicon Valley and, and especially joining Y Combinator is, is a pretty big first step towards making that decision that that's the kind of company that you want to be, whether you want to, wanted to or not beforehand. A lot of people, I think, are, are themselves trying to decide what they want to do with their companies. You know, do they go the fundraising route or do they uh, try to bootstrap things and maybe grow a little bit more slowly? How would you say that raising money has affected your goals and your vision for HackerRank? I think there are two things. One is what comes with the money. If if it's if, if you're not going to get any sort of strong advice or if you're not going to have a strong VC or a board member who can help you think through the problems, who can help you navigate through challenges, who can help you recruit a great team. Um, I don't. I, I think that that kind of money. It's it's hard to debate how how valuable that is. But if, if the money plus the aspect of somebody who can help you navigate through the challenges and help you be a strong partner to build a great company, I think that's very powerful. Um, specifically, if you're a first-time founder, if you're a first-time entrepreneur, that can be really valuable. Okay, so I want to get back into the, the story of, of you growing HackerRank because a lot of time has passed between when you first got into YC and where HackerRank is today. I mean, I think you guys have grown at least 10 or 100 times since then. Is that is that accurate? Yeah, well, although the base was really small, yeah, so yeah. What kinds of things went into that? Yeah, I've never really uh, looked back at that, <clears throat> but I think at, at every stage it was, we, we had a very clear goal of, okay, we want to make sure, I, I, th- I think at some level you need to identify yourselves as what, it, spe- specifically in a marketplace, uh, who is your primary audience? Um, and I think there's a, there's, a, there's a great article. I think she was in Airbnb or, or she was a consulting, consultant in Airbnb. It's a great article on how do you, how do you prioritize this. So if you have drivers and writers, um, what does is, what is your company stand for? And, and how, do you, how do you lean towards? You, 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 of course, need both, um, both the players, but how do you go ahead and do it? So I think from early on, we were a very developer focused company we of course needed to have a good balance between developers and companies but at the end of the day it was more on how do we make sure that we can our mission is to match every developer to the right job so even even in our mission statement it is the the primary thing is how do you make sure that you can connect the developer to the right job so a lot of the things that we did on the product side in terms of growing was con- consistently based on how do we make sure that the experience of developers is great? Which is, of course, going to help companies a lot because if, if you get more signals about a developer in terms of how they did and if you continue to enhance your editor capabilities, if you continue to enhance the types of languages that he supported, uh, all of these is going to help developers, which is in turn going to help companies. So at a, at a very core thing, we were uh, a developer-first or developer-oriented type company where we try to get uh, improve a lot on, on the direction. On the go-to-market side, um, it was just it, initially it was just a lot of trial and error where I was the first salesperson and then the pricing model was just a complete uh, was just completely pulled out of thin air and we didn't know what what was the right kind of pricing model so we went ahead and pitched to a lot of companies figured out okay this works this doesn't work so initially it was just me doing a lot of sales and then we started to hire our first few salespeople and then try to <clears throat> try to get the right head of sales and and continue to up-level the team in terms of how they pitch, uh, how do you build a very repeatable sales cycle, um, how do you have, um, how do you make sure that your message is consistent across the org. So I think at every stage uh, of evolution, you need a dif- slightly different, slightly enhanced go-to-market strategy. So it was initially trial and, trial and error. Even now, it's, it's, at some level, it's a trial and error, but uh, at least we have a clear path on how to evolve. So at this point, you guys are killing it. You're, you hit product market fit, YC is invested, you're growing like crazy and people like what you've built. But was there ever anything that really worried you, like a, an obstacle that you guys thought you wouldn't be able to overcome or some sort of a stopping point in front of you? I think Silicon Valley, I, I don't want to blame Silicon Valley, but uh, but just the perception is um, it gives a tremendous amount of credit for high growth, and, and which, is, which is good. You know, high growth company is great. Uh, but sometimes... Uh, what, what that also means is you need to do, you need to balance that with extremely good fundamentals or good foundation. Uh, so I think I, I, I've, I've thought through this a lot, and uh, specifically I think somewhere between 2014 and 2015, where we were hiring like crazy. We're actually also growing like crazy uh, in terms of our uh, annual re- recurring revenue and things. But um, I, I always had the feeling, hey, have we? 
is our foundation right? Uh, have we do we know exactly what we are pro- what we are selling, and do we know do we have a clear product roadmap to support that? Do we have the right engineering or do we have the right product folks to go ahead and build that? And I think we, I was particularly caught by this whole thing of hyper growth. Okay, you need to whatever it takes. You need to double your ARR year over year. Otherwise, you're not an interesting company at all. Uh, and I think uh, and I think that bit us a bit. Um, I, yeah, that bit us in 2016, and um, and so we had to make sure that okay, we need to have our foundations and fundamentals right. And frankly, the company right now is I personally feel is, a, is in a much much stronger, healthier state for us to go and scale faster. I, and I and I think that's that's something I admire about Stripe. Uh, I remember in in my YC class. Uh, there was Braintree that was just growing like crazy. And, and I remember there was an email from somebody saying, hey, you know, Braintree is offering us uh, $50,000 in free credits. And I think it was Patrick or someone saying, hey, by the way, we're working on this product called Stripe. <laughs> I think or it was probably called Dev Payments or something. Um, and, uh, you know, just hold on to this. And this was 2012. So, uh, or early 2000, uh, late 2011 or early 2012. So, I, 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 and if you if you just think about the growth rates, probably Braintree was growing at a much faster rate. But I think what what I admire about Stripe and and Patrick in, in a lot of his interviews is the fact that how much time he took in ensuring that the first ten people were really important, were really right. Took about a couple of years to make sure that that foundation was good. And now, you know, you can have you can continue to grow and scale. I think that's a that's a great lesson. Uh, I felt I learned it. A, I learned it a bit late, but I think our company is in a much stronger position state right now. What other lessons would you say you've learned along the way? Because I mean, you started off in a situation where it wasn't at all clear that you would achieve the level of success that you've had today, that you would manage as many employees that you have today, and, and generate as much revenue. What has surprised you, or what what have you encountered that's much different than what you initially expected? Um, I think I was very naive uh, when when I started uh, uh, in terms of of understanding what it takes to build a company. Uh, I was under the assumption that, okay, I'm a a developer. I can code. Hari can code. You know, that's 70% done. (laughs) The rest 30% is, okay, you build a product and people go ahead and buy the product. Um, Because you never really, of course, coming from India, and admiring Silicon Valley, you, you sort of admire Zuckerberg, Larry Page, um, Max Levchin, and and none of them really looked like sales folks, right? I mean, they were all they were all strong developers, and uh, okay, they built a great product and, and continue to um, continue to get adoption, and they make a lot of money, um, a lot of money in sales. Um, I think my biggest uh, or the interesting thing is my determination or courage to do things um, has been sort of uh, or persistence or however you want it you want to frame that has been far far way more tested than my intelligence or IQ to do this uh, it was it was it was a completely different I, I would have never thought that okay if you needed to get from this point point a to point B, you you needed a level of IQ for sure, but the biggest determinant is going to be: are you uh, are you just determined to do that, or are you persistent to do that? And um, it was it was really surprising. Yeah, it's clear just from from listening to your story. I mean, we've been over it, but you got rejected from Y Combinator twice. You've had multiple businesses that you had high hopes for that ended up failing, and yet you kept sticking with it. You didn't quit. And we've mentioned Airbnb, which is like the canonical. Never quit, keep sticking with your dream story, but it's in reality much harder to do. And based on the people that I've talked to, the number one reason that companies die isn't because the founders are untalented or because they're in a space, you know, with no customers, but it's because people eventually quit. They get tired of the challenge and and go on to something safer. What do you think has been the difference that's allowed you to stay motivated? And what are some tips you have for other people who might be going through rough patches? I think I think at some level I've been lucky to have uh, a great co-founder like Hari. So, uh, so that's you know I, I can I can speak to someone openly about some of the challenges and and get real advice. You know you don't you don't get that a lot. So I do think it's important. Um, and this is probably I'm not sure this is probably why YC is so hell bent on you need to have a co-founder. Uh, because at these low moments, when you don't have someone whom you can talk to and exactly understand the situation you are in, it's probably going to be painful. Um, the second one is is likely uh, I have not given given it 
that much of thought, but the second one is likely I, I really want to solve this problem. Um, and so there is no sort of external motivation or, or anything of the sort. I, I really wanted to solve this. So I still want to solve this. Um, and so you, you just have to keep going. So I, 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 it's probably not the best answer, but those two are, are likely the reasons. No, I think it's a great answer. I think it's really easy to underestimate, especially early on when you're 100% optimism and you haven't started yet. It's really easy to underestimate how hard the hard times will be and how important it it is to have somebody to talk to. Ideally, a co-founder who knows everything that you're going through. But at the very least, you know, like a, a, a community of founders or mentors or advisors who you can confide in. And I think, you know, if, if I wish there was some data on it, but I w- would bet that companies that have more, multiple founders or companies where the founder at least has some advisors end up, you know, lasting a little bit longer than companies that are run by a solo founder who's not talking to anybody. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I definitely think that's uh, logically that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and um, and I think I think the the whole question of determination and persistence is is also not just till you get the product market fit. I think I think every year it it becomes harder. And at least one thing that I validated from others is yes, they also say it becomes harder. Okay, good. Uh, you know, I'm not the only crazy one. So um, and 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 so it, you you have to have that level of determination to continue to go onto the next level. So, it, it, so what, I'm, what I mean to say is it, it never stops. It, it never ends. <laughs> so you, you, you can be the most persistent guy till you get the product market fit. And you, after that, if you start losing it it, 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 it will still not lead to a large company. So I think, um, I th- I think it never stops. And, uh, and this is probably one of the reasons I remember PG telling, not, not me, but some other, uh, he was advising another person during one of the office hours, you have to choose your idea carefully because one of the things that's just going to keep you going the low times is, is, is whether you really want that idea to come true. Uh, and, and that was a very profound advice because I, I didn't think of it that deeply because I, at that time we were on this real high, oh, we got into YC, these customers are buying and, and so on. But, but it really hit me, okay, when, when you're going through that low rough patch, um, if you're not personally super, super committed to the mission, um, it, it's, it's going to be very hard for you to get up and say, okay, I really want to do this. Yeah, I think that's excellent advice. And it's, it's one of those things that's so easy to, to talk about you know, when you're in the situation where you have like a really cool company like HackerRank. You know, or even in my situation, I think Andy Hackers is pretty cool, and I agree with the mission. And I talk to a lot of other founders who are kind of stymied by the challenge of coming up with an idea that not only is a viable business, but also something that they're passionate about. Because it's, it's, if you were to sort of make a Venn diagram, there's not a lot of overlap between those two circles for a lot of people. Uh, if you had to start from scratch right now and come up with a, an, a new idea that couldn't be hacker rank or couldn't even be in the same space, how would you go about that process? I think, uh, I think the first one, I, I, don't think, I don't think I would change much about how we got to a product market fit. I think I would still continue to... Um, uh, c- continue to firstly, I would probably choose something that I'm personally really passionate about in terms of a problem that I really wanted to solve, um, and 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 I wouldn't change much about approaching customers, getting their feedback, and iterating a lot on that. The things that I would be more careful um, is making sure that I that we don't do a lot of things. Uh, early on, I do think uh, our first product was not really an MVP. It had a lot of different things that were going on, which is possibly one of the reasons why we said, "Okay, I'm going to create questions on our uh, on on my own." You just forward us the the doc. It, it could have been way more simpler. So one thing I would change is uh, we're going to do just this one thing because that's what customers want. That's what we are passionate about, and we're going to do this one thing really, really, really well that uh, that everybody loves. Um, and I think WhatsApp is a perfect example of that. Such a simple, simple product. It doesn't even require your email. It doesn't even require a sign-up or a login. All you need to do is just their phone number and all you can do is just send a text. Of course, I think now they, they might have broadened it, broadened it more, but they didn't have audio, video, nothing of the sort early on. So I think that, that would be one thing that I would change. The second thing is, I think we were somewhat lucky in our first hires. We didn't we we hired a couple of people from our network and and the people who came on board who were not from our network worked out incredibly well but i think we were we were just lucky um i think if i were to think through i would put a much stronger 
emphasis on who we want to be the first 10 people that we're going to hire, uh, I think that changes or that impacts the trajectory of the company a lot. Um, the third thing is I would probably try and put the core values of the company uh, much earlier in the life cycle, um, uh, in, in, the, in the evolution of the company. I think we're just actually starting to identify okay, here are the core values. And, and we, we go, we're going through a very rigorous process of talking to our early employees and figuring out what makes our company work and why are there people who are performing well and so on. So we're going through a rigorous process. But, it, but what, we have, what we are starting to really end up is core values are just ending up like personalities of Hari and me. Uh, which, which I think at some level makes sense <laughs> because that's, that's kind of the company uh, we started. I think I would have done that way earlier, uh, written it down and make sure that every hire who came in had to had to absolutely have all of these values embodied and specifically had an interview focused on this. Uh, I think those are the those are some other things that I would have changed uh, or that I would change if, if, if I were to start all over again. Do you think that focusing on culture and your core values is something that uh, clearly it's something you wish you had done earlier. Do you think it's something that you can do before finding product market fit? Or do you think your business really has to start working before it's it's something you should prioritize? Yeah, I, I wouldn't... Uh, my my recommendation would be not to not to do anything except just you and your co-founder till you get product market fit. And it's hard to exactly define what that line is when you found product market fit. Is it, is it when you have a paying customer? Is it when you have 10 beta customers who really love your product? It's hard to find, but I think it's somewhat of an intuition, okay, customers are willing to buy this and then go ahead and start to do. I, I don't think, you know, you, you should try to over-engineer your company before product market fit. I know uh, we're running short on time here, so I want to wrap up with just one question. But we've, we've spent some time focusing in on some of the challenges of being a founder and how, regardless of how big you get, it's always going to be hard. You're always going to be doing unscalable things, and it's always going to feel like, you know, maybe you might not make it to your goal. Uh, what are some of the positive aspects of being a founder and what are some of the things, some of the ways that your life has changed for the better having started a company? Hmm. I think, I think you, you start to realize what, what you can do as a, as a person. Um, uh, and, um, I, I never, I, I never thought I'd be able to, you know, go ahead and sell or, um, to a customer. I, I mean, I'm, I'm a developer and all I did the whole of my college life and at Amazon and everything was just sit in front of a Mac and code. Um, I think it gives you a perspective of the things that you can do. And frankly, it gives a lot of confidence that you can go and do things that, that you didn't know how to do before that you, uh, which is, which is a, which is a really good, good sort of confidence that you can, that you can try and develop. Um, and for me, for, uh, having, having, value delivering value to customers is a uh, is, is is just my caffeine shot when i go and meet a customer and they they talk about how great the product is and how much they've saved time or when i talk to a developer i was at this um, <clears throat> i was at this uh, ta- school it's called the zip code uh, it's a it's a coding school in wilmington and um, there was this there was this girl who walked walked to me after the uh, after the talk and she said i had no idea, no background in computer science i worked so hard for the last 6 months almost 18 hours straight coding building an app working on hackerang and i got a job at this bank and uh, it was it was so it was so great to hear that and and i think that those are some of the things that you get to experience that are, that are the positive side of okay you're adding real value to the world the to customers um, i think those are some of the positive things that you're able to do yeah and i think i, I wouldn't say this is the last um, it is just incredibly fun to work with a smart team. <laughs> it's it's a tautology. It sounds obvious, but uh, and and every founder will probably claim that their team is the smartest among, among everyone else. <laughs> of but, course. Um, but it, it it is really good when when your team tries to push you to become better, and you have really strong conversations of how to solve a problem. Uh, it's it's very uh, it's very stimulating. Uh, it's mentally uh, very stimulating discussions that you can have. So yeah, yeah, it can be tremendously rewarding just to push yourself and to see you know how far you can go as a founder and the things that you can learn and the skills that you can pick up that you never would have imagined you'd be good at. And then it kind of multiplies it when you surround yourself with other people because you built out a team of others who are similarly skilled and who, who are doing the same things alongside you. And with that, I think we'll end the episode. It's been really great having you on, Vivek. 
Can you tell listeners where they can go to find out more about you and about HackerRank? Yeah, so uh, you can go to HackerRank.com. Uh, I do write blogs probably once in, once every six months now. It's uh, decreased a lot. It's, it's on rvivek.com. And you can email me, Vivek, at HackerRank. I am on Twitter at rvivek. I'm not active so much on Facebook, uh, but happy to help or answer any questions. All right, thanks so much for coming on the show, Vivek. Okay, thank you so much. If you enjoyed listening to this conversation and you're looking for a way to help support the Indie Hackers podcast, then you should subscribe on iTunes and leave a quick rating and a review. It only takes about 30 seconds, but it actually really helps get the word out, and I would personally appreciate it very much. In addition, if you are running an internet business or if it's something that you'd like to do in the future, you should join me and a whole bunch of other internet entrepreneurs on the ndhackers.com forum. It's basically a community of like-minded individuals just giving each other feedback and helping out with ideas and landing pages and marketing and growth and other internet business-related topics. That's www.ndhackers.com slash forum. Hope to see you guys there.